Good morning, everyone. Thank you for having me in your living room. Uh, this is going to be good. Um, I was expecting to see people, and I have four, so that will be my audience. And um, let's just start off with a quick word of prayer. Father God, thank you that you are sovereign, that you are good. Lord, I thank you for your word, which gives us all that we need pertaining to life and godliness. Lord, I thank you for the fact that you have given us Christ. That is a depth of mercy we will never comprehend. Lord, it is an eternal blessing. Lord, I thank you for the fact that you have removed the weight of our sin. Lord, that you have paid our ransom. Lord, I pray that you will bless the reading of your word this morning. Allow it to change hearts as you have designed it to do. Pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Today I'm going to be speaking on Matthew 18, 21 through 35. When I was considering what text to preach on, I had a couple of different ones in my mind, and then my sweet wife recommended one. And so obviously I chose that one. I found that when my wife recommends something, it is a very, very wise recommendation. And so, I'm not going to introduce much. I don't believe this text needs um, a whole bunch of introduction or fanfare. So let's read aloud Matthew 18, verses 21 through 35. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me, and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy times, seven times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him ten thousand talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell to his knees, imploring him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you Oh, so his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked slave. I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also, my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. 
This is one of my favorite passages in the Bible. There are a lot of reasons for that. I believe that this is probably one of the most dense passages when it comes to application in real practical life. So much so that I can almost say that in almost every single encounter with a human being who is struggling with an issue in life, whether it be their own personal sin, someone's sin against them, or the struggle of living in a sin-fallen world. At one point or another, I will probably go through this text with them. This text is an amazing passage because it is the gospel described, held in contrast to a heart completely unmet by the gospel. It is the gospel described and the heart of unforgiveness described in contrast. Forgiveness is an issue that we all probably struggle with. And it is an issue that we are going to probably continue to struggle with as long as we live in a sin-filled world with sinning people and a sinful nature. And so, when I looked at passages that... I have to go through a lot. For my own soul or for others, this one is a clear winner. It's a beautiful text. And it starts off in an interesting way. So let's set the context and we'll dive in. So here in Matthew 18, we're in a house in Capernaum. And Jesus has been doing a bit of a monologue, a teaching. And he actually just finished up a teaching on reconciliation. Now, we call it church discipline, but in reality, it's, it's a passage on reconciliation. In verses 15 through 20, Jesus describes the process of when one sins against you, what ought to occur. And as Peter is listening to this lecture, he starts thinking of some questions. And so much so that he actually then interrupts Jesus in the middle of his teaching. And so we have this long monologue of Jesus' teaching, and then Peter comes up with a really helpful question. We love Peter. He is just wise enough to have really good questions and just foolish enough to ask them. And so he is actually quite a beautiful picture of the heart of every believer because normally these are questions that we all have thought, but he was just so blessed to be there to hear the rebuking answer when he's asked the question. And so Peter approaches Jesus. Now, I think it's safe to say that he probably has some kind of good intention here. He may be hearing murmuring amidst the, the room of questions. Now, wait a second. This teaching on reconciliation that Jesus has just given basically puts the duty of reconciliation in the lap of whoever is in the midst of a struggle. So Peter's listening. He goes, okay, I get this, Jesus. I get that forgiveness is important, that reconciliation is important. I, I understand that really I don't even need to wait for the other person to repent to be seeking reconciliation with them. I understand that I don't need to wait for them to understand that they're wrong before I finally make peace. I understand that reconciliation ultimately comes down to my duty, regardless of who I am or what circumstances I find myself in. My duty is to seek reconciliation. But wait a second. 
Peter starts to realize this is a sinful world. And a sinful world is filled with sinful people. And sinful people keep sinning. And so he comes up with an actually very good question. But we know that maybe his motives aren't entirely pure as well. Because he asks a question that follows right along with an answer. We often do this. We don't really want to know the answer. We just want someone else to know that we know the answer. And so let's read aloud. Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me? And I forgive him. Good question. Realistically, we need to consider, okay, if I'm supposed to be pursuing reconciliation, when can I stop, Jesus? Because you've got to understand, this is not going to just go away. But then he offers a suggestion for Jesus to just marvel at the wisdom of Peter. As many as seven times. Now, that's actually a bit of a generous offer. At this time, the, the teaching in the rabbinical school would in roughly be that forgiveness is to take place three times. This is through some misinterpretation of some Old Testament texts where rabbis would preach, you must forgive three times. But after that, done. Now, Peter knew his Lord. He knew the heart of Jesus, and he knew his softness towards sinners. Peter maybe even understood a little bit of the the importance that Jesus saw when it came to dealing with sin. And so Peter actually went ahead and, and went above and beyond in giving a suggestion to Jesus. Okay, I won't even say three times, which is the godly way of forgiving here, Jesus. How about seven? Double plus one, above and beyond. And Jesus, he responds in the way he typically does with something that no one in the room could have ever guessed. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 70 times seven times. Wow, bit of an undershot there, Peter. Now, let's be very clear. Jesus right now is not trying to draw a literal line numerically on forgiveness. We're about to enter into a parable where the numbers are actually speaking more about a point rather than a specific number. So don't get caught up on, well, 490 means we've been married for 60 years. I've forgiven you three times every year. That means I'm not even doing that math, but it's over 490. We're done. For those of you who are under lockdown in COVID, you're probably like, well, yeah, but I've spent every single day with you for the last however many months and every single minute of every single day I've had to forgive you. And so we're done. Jesus is not drawing a line where we can sit there and go 488, 499, 490, clean. Jesus is making a point. He takes the absolute most generous offer that Peter could sum up, multiplies it times 10, and then multiplies it again by itself. Jesus is drawing a key point. Forgiveness of the Christian is to be unending. Forgiveness for the Christian is to be unending. And then he goes into this story. You see, he answers Peter's question directly, but then he does this amazing thing where he starts to expound upon the question. He doesn't merely give an answer, but he wants us to understand the heart behind the question. 
What was going on in Peter's chest that allowed him to even ask this question? And how does that compare to the heart of Christ? Jesus teaches us far more than we want to learn. And so we continue in verse 23. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. There's a whole bunch just in that little section. Here's what we have. A kingdom, a king, and a servant. This servant has been given resources by the king, and the piper is playing. Time's up. He is getting called in to answer for how he has stewarded that which he has been given by the king. And as he is entering in, he bears a weight of debt that Jesus uses 10,000 talents. Now, the word that he uses is actually murion, which is the largest Greek numeration, meaning it's the biggest number that you can go to that still has a word to it. Many commentators say that, in essence, what we're hearing here is a zillion dollars. It's an astronomical amount. It's almost comical to consider that a human being could somehow acquire this much debt. It's a debt that far more points to the offense against the king than the actual debt the servant could wrap up. Not only that, but he says talents, the highest quantity of monetary value at the time. So we're not even just saying a zillion dollars, we're saying like a zillion $100 bills. It's just astronomical. Again, the numbers are not meaning a specific number. They're making a point. And so as Jesus' listeners are hearing this, they're hearing a very scary situation for this servant. Well, what happens? The king calls to account the servant, and we find out the punishment. He is about to watch as his wife and children and all that he knows and loves is sold away because of his failure. An incredible, insurmountable debt is found upon him. And Jesus shows us something about this guy's heart. You see, when this servant comes in with a ridiculous amount of debt, he has a reaction to his sentence. And it exposes his heart. He falls to his knees and he begs the king. Right response, good response, proper response considering the circumstances. But he begs him, have patience with me and I will repay you everything. Now this shows us a little bit about the servant, doesn't it? It shows us that this gentleman is either very deceived or very arrogant. He could be deceived he could not actually understand the weight of his debt. 
He could genuinely just not quite comprehend the depth and level to which he has offended the king, making himself a traitor to the kingdom. Or, possibly worse, he could be arrogant. He could actually look at his track record of racking up this much debt and think, no, I could get it out of it. Actually believing of his own talent and his own good that he would be able to pay back the king. The servant is either very deceived or very arrogant. And yet, the king here doesn't correct his foolishness. The king doesn't correct it at all, in fact. Instead, the king shows something about his heart. Upon the proclamation that this servant would pay every penny back, the king responds, and out of compassion for him, verse 27, out of compassion for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. This is an insurmountable debt. This is the gospel described. Jesus here paints a picture of every single believer standing before the king. Jesus paints a picture here of the debt which humanity in of itself bears before the king. And yet, the king exposes his heart to a sinful, deceived servant. We learn in verse 27 that forgiveness to the king comes from compassion. It releases guilt and it erases the debt which is owed. This is a sacrifice taking place on the king's behalf. Someone must pay the debt in any time Forgiveness occurs, no, someone pays the debt. But the king takes on the debt himself. He releases from custody this servant and erases the claim of his life, freeing him from debt. Now, the listeners understand this story, don't they? The disciples have heard this before. This is a simple story. This is the gospel. This is the gospel described. They would have understood what's going on here, and they would have gone, exactly, Jesus. You understand forgiveness is a good thing. This is great. We love this story. But Jesus doesn't stop there. That's actually not the end of the story. It's only about half. And so Jesus continues. Out of compassion for him, the master of the servant released him and forgave him the debt. Verse 28, but. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. So the servant is released from debt. He has just watched his wife, his children, all that he knows and loves restored to him that he gets to keep, it's his, he's safe, he's free, nothing left owed against the king. 
And it says he goes out and finds someone who owes him. This has got, us, got to give us a little bit of an, an excitement, yes? We ought to be expecting, what's he going to do? He's hunting down this person who owes him some money. What are we going to see? But our encouragement and our hope kind of takes a dark turn when we see the heart of this servant. He finds a fellow servant who owed him 100 denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me, and I will pay you. Interesting turn. This servant goes out, and he doesn't just stumble upon another servant. It says he found him. This was intentional. This was plotted. This was ready for. This was something that he had rehearsed in his head. This was his response to one who owed him a debt. Now, I think numbers can be very helpful. I think Jesus chose the numbers that he did intentionally. And so we look at 100 denarii, and we may be tempted to think, oh, that's tiny. Where actually that's not true. This is about 100 days wages, maybe three or four months of a salary. Now, do the math. If you make approximately $2,000 a month, it's about $8,000. If you make about $4,000 a month, that's about $16,000. That's not a light debt. If someone were to wrong me or harm me or take from me that quantity, my family is going to experience the depth of that debt. It will hang over my head for quite some time. That is in no way a minor amount of money. It's significant. It's very significant to a laborer. But you see, the, the numbers are making a point. While it's not a tiny amount, it is absolutely nothing compared to the 10 million denarii that this servant has just been forgiven. Comparatively, it doesn't even match up. And so we get to see this servant go out and begin to violently attack a fellow servant. You see, we see from the unforgiving heart at this point that the unforgiving heart is glad to accept mercy but it will see no beauty in pouring it out. It only will see beauty in revenge. The unforgiving heart is glad to receive mercy, but it will see no beauty in pouring it out. The unforgiving heart is the heart of someone who would happily accept your forgiveness The unforgiving heart is one that would happily even demand it of others. But when crossed, there will be no beauty in forgiveness. We see two hearts here. We've seen the heart of the king whose first reaction to a deceived traitor, the erasing of debt. And we see a second heart the heart of the unforgiver, which is ready to demand payment. So what does he do? Verse 30, 
No, verse 29. So his fellow servant fell down. I remember someone else who fell down. And pleaded with him. I remember someone else who pled. Have patience with me and I will pay you. You know the astounding thing about Jesus' choice of words? It's almost the exact same thing this servant had just said. The difference is this servant could have paid it back. This servant's debt was actually attainable. Now it would have cost some pain. It would have cost some time. It would have cost some sacrifice. And yet it was attainable. He could have actually paid him back. And this is where we see the depth of the anger within the heart of unforgiveness. Verse 30, he refused. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay back the debt. He wasn't interested in being paid back. He wasn't interested in making things right. He wasn't interested in peace. He was not interested in reconciliation. He was interested in revenge. You see, if he actually wanted the money back, it would have made far more sense for him to give patience that he could receive payment. He was not interested in being paid back. He was interested in payback. The heart of unforgiveness looks not for peace, not for reconciliation, it looks for revenge. Let's read on. Because Jesus doesn't leave us to interpret this on our own. He gives verses 31 through 33, which help us interpret it. And then he even steps out of his story to make sure we don't miss it, to interpret it for us. Verses 31 through 33. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? So we actually get to see that those who are not involved in this situation, they understand something's gone amiss here. The fellow servants are distressed. They comprehend, no, 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 this was injustice. This was not a proper response to your fellow slave. They respond by fleeing to the master. And the master shows us exactly how to interpret what took place. He calls in this slave who prior was walking in with a great amount of debt. Walking in with a great amount of debt to a heart that was ready to forgive. And now he walks in with no debt. With a heart of wrath from the master awaiting his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked slave. You see, the master actually interprets his deeds as against him. The master himself. This has been offensive not only to the fellow servants, but it's been offensive to the master who granted forgiveness in the first place. 
Why could that be? Unforgiveness exposes a hardness of heart against the Lord, not man. I want to be very clear, so I'll say it again. When I have a heart of unforgiveness to another person, it exposes my hardness of heart to God, not the other person. My offense is against the master. A proclaiming believer in this state stands on very dangerous ground. So we get to see in verses 31 through 33 that the master actually then is offended. And he then compares his mercy on that servant as a direct result of what took place. He says, should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant? I forgave you that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you have not had mercy as I had on you? You see, from this, we understand that a heart of forgiveness or unforgiveness shows the measure of forgiveness that we believe we have received from God himself. It is a barometer, a measuring stick of the view that we have of the forgiveness we have received. The master is shocked that one who could have received such forgiveness could then pour out such wrath. He clearly shows that there is no true understanding of what he has been given. My forgiveness of others is a measure of the view I have of what I have been given. There is no plea. There is no falling on the ground. And in anger, verse 34, his master delivered him to the torturers, or jailers, the torturers, until he should pay all his debt. A proclaiming believer who stands in staunch unforgiveness is in very dangerous ground. Discipline is required for the true believer. Discipline from a loving father for a heart so hardened against God that it's not willing to actually pour out the same forgiveness that they have received. There is something wrong here. And discipline will be required for that heart. And yet we have to then question, if there's a heart that's so willing to shake its fist at God and so willing to hold fast to the debt of another, so willing to demand pay what you owe, so willing to not grant the forgiveness that they have been granted, if you're willing to harden your heart and harden your heart and harden your heart and harden your heart, this may be an exposure of a heart that's never been touched by the gospel. Because it's very clear here by the master's response that there should have been a change. It's very clear here that a heart touched by the grace and mercy of God, it ought to have an effect on the human heart. Now, please don't mishear me. Please don't hear that, well, if I'm struggling with unforgiveness, that means I'm not a believer. That's not what I'm saying. We actually know this to be true because of what Jesus then says later. He actually steps out and he says, so also my heavenly father will do to every one of you. This is a popular struggle. 
This is a struggle that every one of us will indeed struggle with as sinners in a fallen, sinful world with other sinners. But let's be very clear. A heart touched by grace must understand it has one response. Ought you not have shown mercy as I have shown mercy to you? Jesus steps out in verse 35. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. As Jesus often speaks, the heart is in view here. You see, forgiveness, according to verse 35, is the choice believers are called to endlessly make, not on the basis of what is deserved by the offending party, but rather on the basis of what the the offended has received. Let me be clearer with that. Forgiveness is to be granted not on the basis of what is deserved, rather on what was not deserved by me. The question that Peter should have asked was not, okay, but Jesus, when do I get to stop? Because people will keep sinning against me and sometimes it will be gruesome. The question instead should not be, what do they deserve When do I get to stop? It's what did I deserve and what did I receive instead? The heart that receives mercy has one response. It must choose to forgive from the heart. It's our only response. So, we understand what we're called to believe. We understand what we're called to know. Jesus just lays out a pretty difficult order. Now what? I want to run you through some questions that I like to ask myself. Some questions that could maybe help me understand whether or not I'm struggling with an unforgiving heart. Sometimes we actually don't even really understand it. Sometimes we were, are choosing not to forgive and really we're kind of unaware of it. So let me ask you some questions to see if maybe this is something that the Lord would call you to think through. Questions to ponder. Here are some hints at the heart of unforgiveness. Question number one. Do I rehearse wrongs done to me over and over in my head? Do I relive the pain and anger or embarrassment over and over afresh? Do I ponder frequently what I should have said to put someone in their place or what I would say to them now to set them straight if I ever got the chance? Do I review my case, reminding myself of why I'm clearly in the right? Do I relish the thought of ill befalling the one who has offended me? Or really... I think a lot more telling of a question. Do I relish the thought of others seeing, knowing, and agreeing that that other person is wrong and that I am right? Am I quick to run to the other servants and go, no, 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 you don't understand. I'm the just one here. Let me explain why. Do I relish the thought of having a gathering of people who will support my understanding of justice? 
rather than seeing it through the eyes of the master. Questions to ponder. I think this is a struggle that we all have. So what do we do? What do we do if we are indeed struggling with unforgiveness? I've come up with three. I pray the Lord will reveal more to you. This is a beautiful passage. It's a beautiful passage because it is a vivid description of the gospel. So I want to speak specifically to those of you who would claim to be unbelievers. You may actually know this whole Jesus thing is nice, it sounds good, it may even be true, but it's not true for me. You know you're not a believer, and there you stand. I want to offer something up to you. I want you to consider deeply God's measure of our sin against him. Consider deeply God's measure of our sin against him. If there is a God, there is one hope. It's amazing when we hear the confession and repentance of this servant at first, it was even misunderstanding the depth of what he had done. He didn't understand the zillion dollar debt. If you want to change the terminology, think of a zillion mile gap. There's nothing he can think or do or say that will bridge that gap in any way. And yet he receives forgiveness on the basis of the heart of compassion of the king. Because the king himself took on the debt that was owed. That debt was taken on through Christ Jesus. Through his life, his death on the cross, as he nailed all sin and debt and erased that which is owed for those who are in Christ Jesus. And then he rose again conquering sin and death eternally. This is the gospel, and there is only one hope. If you stand as an enemy of God, please know your sin is far greater than you may think it is. You have no hope in your ability to bridge that gap. You have no hope in that ability to pay that back. You have one hope, and it comes from a heart of a king who's ready to forgive, whose first response to a traitorous wretch who doesn't even understand his own sin is forgiveness in erasing of debt. How did we receive that forgiveness? According to Romans 5, 8, it was while we were still enemies of him. Please dwell deeply on God's perspective of your sin and turn to the one hope that you have and that is Christ Jesus alone. Those of us who are in Christ, let's say that we stand with clenched fists. Let's say that we stand and we're able to, as so many people have told me, say, you don't understand. You don't get what they have done. You don't understand the depth of the pain that they have caused me. You will not fault me if only you were the one who had been sinned against like this. Well, 
My friends, this passage would show us instead that we don't understand. That we don't understand what we have done. That we don't understand the depth of the debt that we come before the king with. We may be as a deceived servant, not realizing our debt is as deep as it is. So what I ask from you, dwell deeply on the depth of your depravity, that you may dwell deeper still on the grace that you have received. It is astonishing to me as I've been growing in Christ to see more and more of my sin. When I first came to Christ, it's shocking to me how little I actually thought of my sin. It's shocking to me that I could even be convicted to the point that I was because I so see a heart of rebellion and evil in my chest now. What must I have been like then, I think? And yet in 40 50, 70, how many years the Lord grants me, I am relatively sure I will look back and think the same thing. Dwell deeply on the depth of your depravity. If I go a day without needing to confess my sin and repent to my wife, my three-and-a-half-year-old, my two-year-old, I'm not paying attention. Because my sin is ever before me and me not seeing it makes it even scarier because it means I'm just used to it. Dwell deeply on what God calls us to do and dwell deeply on our natural response. Dwell deeply on your depravity that you may dwell deeper still on the beauty of the forgiveness that you have been given. When we see the riches of his grace poured out on us, it shows our heart the only choice is to pour out that which has been poured in. When we understand the depth of grace we've received, we will no longer measure someone's offense against us by how it hurts us. We will measure their offense against us by the offense we have committed against God. We don't get to decide what's able to be forgiven and what's not. Forgiveness does not mean it doesn't bother you that much, so you'll let it go. We do not get to decide what is forgiven and what is not. Look back to the hundred denarii. It wasn't a small debt, and yet his actions were wicked. So, there's a story in Luke 7, 36 through 50. There's a story of a woman who approaches Jesus at a Pharisee's house. And this woman is weeping from the moment she sees him to the moment Christ begins talking. And she weeps and washes his feet with her tears and her hair. And the Pharisee that Christ is sitting with, it says, he thinks to himself, ugh. If only this were a true prophet, he would know what sort of person this is. Not able to see the heart of one broken over their own sin and shame, he actually takes the humanity out of that woman and says that she's a sort of person. Jesus' response? 
do you see this woman? Because what Jesus sees is a heart of repentance, a broken-hearted cry for help. Jesus sees the depth of our sin. And his response is grace. Dwell deeply on your sin that you may dwell deeply still on the grace you've been given. Final point. For those who are claiming believers, as the Lord commanded 490 times of forgiveness afresh, I find it interesting that he didn't just say unending. He didn't just say eternal. He gave us a number that seemed quite substantial. And when you actually then look at the Luke 17 passage, which reflects this passage, verses one through four, we actually hear that Jesus saying the conversation went on and he said, if someone sins against you seven times in a day, meaning in the same way, yet you are to forgive. Now, I don't know about you, but if someone is able to sin against me in the exact same day, in the exact same way, seven or 490 different times, they got to be almost trying to do that. That hasn't happened to me, I don't think. But you know what has happened? Someone has sinned against me once. And I relived it in my head again, and again, and again, and again, 490 times afresh. And the deeper the hurt, easier it is to do that. What would Christ call us to? As Christ calls us to forgive afresh 490 times, we are called to set our heart to forgive. We are called to set our heart that as we go about, when we relive afresh a sin against us, that we might again turn to the Lord's grace and mercy and say with our Savior, forgive them, they know not what they do. We are called to choose to forgive again and again, and even by God's grace, according to Romans 8, 28 and 29, he can even use sin against us to conform us to his image. One who was able to forgive the offenses of mankind entirely one who was able to stand under revile and not revile back. One who was able to forgive the hands that nailed him to his tree. Set your heart to forgive again and again and again. And the sin of others can actually become a form of worship to you as you relive afresh the forgiveness that you have been given. As you relive afresh the depth of the grace and mercy of such a king that would look at you and say, free, forgiven, released, and pardoned. Let sin of others against you become an act of worship in your heart as you get to choose to die to self as Christ did again and again and again and again. We serve 
a forgiving master. And the heart of unforgiveness is not a heart that is welcome in any believer. For it was not the heart of unforgiveness that we have been given through Christ Jesus. Rather, we have died to self and raised to live for him. Let's pray. And then we'll continue forward with our service. Father God, reveal to us the depth of our depravity that you may reveal to us more greatly still the depth of your forgiveness to us. As you said in Luke 7, Lord, those who are forgiven much Love much. Lord, renew our minds to see our sin that we may confess, repent, and turn again to you. Lord, may you work on our hearts that as we hold our offenses against other people, as they have wronged us, sometimes in gruesome ways, let us recall the gruesome death of your Christ, which was done in response to our sin. Lord, renew afresh in our minds the grace of Christ Jesus. Deepen our understanding of your love for us. Lord, that we may run to forgive the debts of others. For we know the depth of what we have first been forgiven. Lord, turn our hearts to respond as Christ. As you so graciously have responded to us. Amen.